Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. Alam, alam. Hello, you are listening to We Have Ways um, of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. And we, you could probably tell from the background noise, we're on one of our excursions, aren't we, James? We are. We're in the atrium of the Imperial War Museum. Yep. And uh, so that's why, if it sounds a little bit kind of sort of echoey, echoey, that would be why. And, and always just a great joy to be here. I mean, yeah. the hours I've spent at this place <laughs> is ridiculous. Yep. Not least in their reading rooms, mm-hmm. um, which used to be in the lovely old tower yep. um, at the top of the building. Um, and then a few years ago, they changed it. And you now have a different reading room, which actually, if I'm brutally honest, might not be as aesthetically pleasing, but from a working point of view, is better. Um, and there, that's where I kind of, you know, be pouring through diaries and memoirs because and papers all, and so on. It, it, people who've come here as a, a as a tourist, as a casual observer, um, in off the street in the rain. It's an atrium with a Spitfire dangling in it, and now a Harrier and <laughs> and a V1 and a V1. And a V2. Yes, we both both the both the vengeance weapons. Yep. Um, uh, you might be familiar with that, but this is a working museum. It's a working archive. Yes. And we have someone who works at the museum. That's a linkage for you that you get on this <laughs> podcast. Um, John Delaney and John, Hello. welcome. Thank Do you. we have ways? And you have a. I'm look. I'm, tell us your title. You've got a fantastic job title, haven't um, you? A very long job title. It's officially Head of Second World War and Mid 20th Century Conflict. Right. Which is a, which, and it wasn't my fault, I didn't start it. <laughs> but, but we've already learned, haven't we, that you're not quite mid because you stop at 1949. Yeah, 29 to 49, I've got a colleague, Carl, who takes over at 49 and he's Head of Cold War. Which is just brilliant. Isn't but if, it? it's, if, you, if, you, if you subscribe to the short 20th century um, theory, which is what, the 1918 to the end of the Soviet Union. Mm hmm. You're not in the middle either, are you? No, I was just never trying to mind. Help you out a, mis- a misnomer. <laughs> just, just Second World War. That'll do. And you're, you've been in Imperial War Museum your whole career, right? 26 years. Right. Uh, Holy moly. Yeah, a long time. Uh, That's good effort. Started at the Imperial War Museum in London, spent a lot of time at Duxford looking after the large objects. Yeah, well, we love it there as well. And now I'm back in London. Uh, By large objects, you mean aeroplanes? Aeroplanes, tanks, tanks, that sort of thing. Oh, and nice. John, I mean, th- this, this building, I mean, it's, it's historic, isn't it? Yes, it, well, it was the old uh, Bedlam Mental Asylum, so some people say a very apt place for a war museum mm-hmm. uh, before so it became... Is this, where, is this the Bedlam that people used to come and look at the lunatics at then? Uh, it moved here probably slightly post that, that date, right, but okay. it, it was the, the, the same institution. Right, wow, gosh. So when uh, did it become a museum here? So the First World War, wasn't it? It became... It, it became yes. <laughs> the park was all given... Right. No, at all. <laughs> the, the, the Imperial War Museum as a museum started out at the First World War. At the, the, the end of the First World War, the, the, there was a great movement for 
a new national museum to commemorate the fact that all this sacrifice had, you know, the Great War, as it was known then, had just finished. And there was a need for a national monument to those who had participated and sacrificed. Yeah. And then it grew from there. And obviously, they didn't at that point know there was going to be a Second World War. But our remit, uh, which is an act of parliament, we're, we're the, we, we exist by an act of parliament as opposed to a charitable status, oh. is to record the conflicts that Britain and the Commonwealth have been involved in since 17. Hence, I mean, because we have other, you know, more, more, because my memory of this place is of the, a Spitfire, the London bus that used to be here in the atrium. That, that, uh, Monty's uh, Grant uh, Tank. No Monty's Grant <laughs> Tank. And uh, yeah, these things have all moved to other, other sites, because after you've Manchester, you've... We've got uh, HMS Belfast, Manchester, yeah. Churchill War Rooms. What did happen here. to Monty's Grant Tank? Monty's Grand Tank is on display at Duxford. Duxford. Should you, should oh, you wish to visit Duxford. it, I'll yeah, show you. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah. Along with his um, caravan. Yeah, I've is seen the caravan. caravan. I just don't remember the tank. Okay. Now, then we have a, Mon a Monty item here, don't we? We do, yes. Do you have a personal connection to? Yes, well, when it was restored, it was restored and put back together because it was in quite a bad way uh, in about 2008 to 2012 when the new atrium here was reopened. And I was the curatorial advisor at that point on the restoration project for that Humber. Of the Humber? Yeah. Well, should we go and have a look at it? Yeah, sure. Brilliant. Let's go. We're going past the T34, but we're not going to say anything about it. No, no. James. We're, saving, you, if, James, we're saving that, James we're saving that for the summer, it, aren't we, Al? It, yeah. It's a, it's a post-war build one. If you, oh, is it? Yeah, it's not a 1944 one, but you right. can, there are little giveaways that give it away. Right. <laughs> what, it's... Uh, is it made with more finesse than the wartime one? Slightly more finesse. <laughs> slightly less poor welding, but still poor welding, nevertheless. Right. Yeah, you do the pity the crews that are in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it is not, uh, it is very, very cramped, it has to be said. Right. Ah, we okay. just silkily move past the Merlin. Yeah, it's a mosquito Merlin, a Merlin 25. So here it is. So and we the, know the, that the Hummer's around the corner here. Hummer's around the corner. Oh, look at that. Wow, look at that. That is amazing. So it's a thing of beauty, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's really sort is. of, it's so, so unmistakably British. Yes, it is rather, isn't it? That's because yeah. it's khaki, James. <laughs> no, it's not just because it's khaki. There's something about it that just says British engineering. So what state was it in um, at the start of the restoration? It was quite in quite a poor state because after the war it was presented to the Roots Group, who, be, who were the manufacturers of Humber, um, and they used it as sort of a... Uh, sort of a show and tell vehicle for their clients to say look right. what we did for the British in the war yeah uh, and then with the decline of the British motor industry it was purchased the Roots Group was purchased in the end Peugeot became the holding company that owned the Humber and because and this is a Humber and it's a, definitely a Humber they had no real uh, need or want to look or after this. Or inclination. Or yeah, inclination yeah, yeah. because it wasn't a Peugeot. Right. So it was basically left. Uh, we found out about it. It was on loan to us for a little while and we said, if you ever want to get rid of it, we would really, really like it for the collection. It came to us in about 2008-ish. Uh, and then we immediately began a restoration project on it. And we know that it was Monty's. Oh, yes, absolutely, yes. It had, it had a plaque on the side of it when it came to us from the Roots Group and we've traced its history back through mm -hmm. uh, wartime photography and film footage and cross-referenced. So you were talking earlier on, for example, about the, the paint scheme, the khaki and yeah. the sand. Yes. Uh, we got photographs of it from the Second World War and copied them exactly Brilliant. as it was being used uh, in the North Africa by Monty. Um, so this is for his North African this is his, car? Yeah, so this he, is had three, he had three cars, Monty. Never, never one to have more than, yeah. <laughs> less than one of anything. He had Old Faithful, which served him in North Africa and then the beginning of the Italian campaign. Yep. Then he left it behind when he came back to the UK to take over for Normandy. Uh, and then 
Um, he had a second Humber which went with him into, into Northwest Europe, and he also had a Rolls-Royce which he acquired. And a B-17. Uh, and, and, and a B-17. It was destroyed all sorts of... in the bulge battle. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing is, I mean, this is one of the... Well, I mean, we talk about... We've talked about Monty quite a lot on the podcast, and I, I'm, I'm fascinated by him, and I'm fascinated by the way his, his reputation became tarnished, and, uh, and actually there's a push, there's a sort of pushback yes. now amongst historians to say to reappraise him and to and to mm. give him a to give him a fair I think a fairer crack of the whip. I agree. But yeah. to actually have his car <laughs> you know he's a real he's a it's this thing that we run into a lot with history. He's a real person if he's got a car. He's yes. not a guy yeah. in a history book. Absolutely. Well I think yeah. one of the exciting things that you know you know how much I bang on about going on walking the walking the ground and stuff. But it's also that tactile link you get when you are touching and handling objects. Yeah. Although please that we do used. not touch or climb James. I know but I'm going to he's got special permission. And and so to restore it, what state was it in? Was it was it was it a, a, a rusted hulk? Uh, pretty much to give you it, it, to give you a good illustration we because the, the the cars were of a standard so there was a separate coach builder uh, as there would be sort of things like Rolls Royces yeah. and whatnot to 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 do the interior to the specifications required and all that in original interior leather finish had perished over the 70 years yeah. so we very carefully removed it and replaced it with with exact copies um, but because of the historical authenticity, and we knew Monty's bum had been on this seat, yeah. those original pieces of shabby leather we've still got in, in plastic right. bags in, in a climate-controlled store. So we don't throw anything away. We so keep all the could, original pieces. If there's a fleck of Monty's DNA, we could Jurassic Park him. Yeah, well, you possibly, maybe. If you could search, <laughs> search about in there and he find some stuff. He is literally the mosquito in the amber. <laughs> is where Monty's and bottom those, has It's been. got those indicators. You get the, little the, stalk the, indicators. The little struts, aren't they? The stalks that come up, because it doesn't have lamps. The one thing that's missing off here that was on here when he was in North Africa, <laughs> you can see there's a, there's a little, you can't quite see it, but dead centre in the middle of the bonnet, there's yeah. two bolt holes. He had a Bagnall Sun Compass on the centre of the Lovely. console because again if you're operating in the desert one of the main things is Bagnall knowing, of course is the pre-war desert explorer who then is one of the pioneers of the long range desert oh, group yeah oh, 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 right. so there's a and we've only got one in the collection and I didn't want to leave it on the hood of the car yeah, yeah <laughs> I mean the, the interesting thing for me about this is having seen Rommel's equivalent which is a very 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 nice horse it's just a different league of yeah. comfort to this, which again just tells you so much about the German and the British way of approaching the war. You know, with, with the British, it's all keep it as cheap as possible, cheap and cheerful, pragmatic, you know, yes, yeah, some comforts, but not too many. Mm. Whereas in Nazi Germany, if you're the top dog, you get an absolutely yeah, amazing, prestige, prestige you know, I mean, you know, everything's in the language of prestige. Yeah. Of course, you know, Rommel is in a chateau in Normandy. Um, Monty's in his caravan, yeah. and you can see those caravans obviously up at, up at Duxford. And you know, in terms of luxury, they're not they're not well, luxurious at all. Stole them anyway, didn't they? they, they or liberated them? Yeah, two Italian. of the three caravans were stolen from Italian generals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But this car, I mean, you can see it. It's it is not the lap of luxury by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, it's nice. It's got leather seats and stuff. But this is pretty spare. I mean, that is not the most comfortable back seat you've ever ever sat in. No. Whereas if you sit in this horse, I mean. Goodness me, it's absolutely amazing that it's just dripping with leather and comfort. Uh, John, if I, yep. if I, does it go? Does it, it will go. Run? Well, it probably won't know because it's sat here for five years. But yeah. when we when it came to Ducks, it came from it Ducks to here in 2012, it was a runner. Yeah, we got it back into running condition. Incredible. Yeah, it's not brilliant. They're lovely Incredible. cars, aren't they? They really are. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, solid, reliable, dependable, all those things. And Monty sat at the back, did he? He, he, he did. Yeah. We've got some. We've got lots of really good photography of this car in in use. But when we wanted to restore it to a particular point in time, because even during its, during its relatively brief service in North Africa and Italy, it was repainted at least three times yeah. by the yeah. by the workshops. So. We, w we needed to make sure we got a set of photographs on that period that covered the car and the camouflage screen from every angle. Right. So you got it exactly right because yeah. you couldn't just do one side from late 1942 and one side from mid-1943 because yeah, it yeah. just wouldn't look right. Yeah. So we, after a lot of research, we found one set of photographs where a cameraman had diligently walked all the way around the car and that's the one we copied. And, and you've got this, this rail here behind the front two seats and between the front two seats and the rear seat. So if Monty's sitting in the back and he wants to stand up and wave at the chaps, he can stand up and he's got something yeah. to and, and hold on to. He'd use this for, for trips from his TAC HQ to, to see other, other his, you know, his divisional commanders. Absolutely, For his yes. frontline trips. for those Because it, it, when he got to the desert, the thing he made a real point of was was being visible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he, and, he, he did a lot of tours to the frontline units, uh, making himself known, putting a face to the name, which a lot yeah. of the previous commanders perhaps hadn't done as much. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so. it was a, very much his, his approach and the experiments with hats yeah. and all that yeah. sort of the, the, the bush hat with all the badges on it eventually winds up on the barrel. He would always take uh, boxes of cigarettes with him, even though he didn't smoke himself, yeah. because he knew that's what the men in the field would want, took them with him and then handed out cigarettes wherever he went. Yeah. Again, get your face known, get yourself known as a person who cares about thinks about the men in the field the importance yeah. of morale it's it's well it's what jonathan fennell's yeah, been yeah, writing yeah, about yeah, but yeah. it's um you know the, i've been thinking about a lot this a lot over over christmas actually and one of the things i've really i've really come to the conclusion that that once the western allies get the operational level ready and then combine that with an understanding of the importance of morale that is when fortune starts to turn and you can actually pinpoint it to that moment that alexander and monty turn up in the western desert mm. and they go right no more retreats and they suddenly you know stop the rot go out, start talking to everyone, explaining what the situation is, yep. why they can feel confident, yep. how everything's going to be different, and it just starts and to even change. Though, but even though you've got progress in the systems in 8th Army at that point, that they, they, are, they, are, they have sorted out their artillery and they have sorted out yeah. their cavalry charges and they have sorted, you know, that all the things that needed to happen institutionally were already underway. Yep. It is the, un, it's that, I mean... It's that combination, it's, it's that a combination com of the right amount of supplies of the right stuff and, and basically the kit is fine. I mean, yeah. even by the fall of Tobruk in June 1941, the kit's okay, you've got yeah. Grant tanks, you've yeah. got plenty of good guns, you've got, yeah. you know, I think they, the machine guns are perfectly, you know, yeah. everything's good. The problem there is, is one of morale and, and leadership and, at that yeah, higher level. And, and, we'll, and yeah. that's what changes. Yeah, yeah, and that's, yeah. it's that harnessing of the two things I think is really, really Rather interesting. Rather necessarily than will, which is the, which is the, the, the thing. Well, is, will is the Nazi way well, of but doing it's things, also, but it's also, but it's also, but it's, yeah, but it's also a thing that people talk about in, 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 uh, in strategic terms. It's the, when you win a war, you've, you've, you've enforced your will on the enemy. Right. It's, and it's, rather than will, it's morale in order to do that. that, that there's, yes. There's always this, mm. you know, the, 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 this confusion of means and ends, if you want. Right. If you see what I mean. One yeah. of the, things the, Nazis thought, the Nazis thought that, that will was the... Which is mm. actually, was everything. Was everything. Whereas in fact, mm. it's just one of the things at your disposal and yes. how you operate it in, in relation to the other elements of... Making, make, winning a war, as it were. You would, I mean, it's also it's interesting. Sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry, sorry. Yeah, go on, sorry. Go on. No, you were talking about criticisms of Montgomery earlier on when we started, yeah. and um, these things have been gone over and over. But uh, he gets, he, he does still get criticised for being uh, a commander who doesn't think in terms of mobility and static lines and yeah. fighting the same, fighting the war like the First World War was fought. But actually, um, I think, as, you, as yeah. I think you do, that that. 
there's a, there's a, it's a lot more subtle than that. He's, he's, he, what he's doing is he's getting inside the Germans' uh, command cycle. He's, he's yep. making them react. By, by sitting still, in certain instances, he's making them react in a way that they don't want to go. If, if he'd have stayed on the move and looked like a manoeuvre general, yeah. he would have been lost in the same way. Well, and also were. he knew perfectly how good, when he inherits 8th Army, how good they are at manoeuvre, and it's not particularly good. So what he does is he tries to create situations to draw the Germans into a counter-attack and then, mm. and then, then, then uh, uh, wear them down mm. by getting them to make the move. And, yeah, exactly. uh, which is, of course, the thing that then, that then turns into how he does things for the rest of the war, really. Well, it's, it's how the Allies do, the West, uh, do. It's their way of war is developed in, in the summer of 1942. Uh, it's, that, it's that idea of using firepower. So what you do is you use your arm and your infantry to probe forward recognising the Germans will always, always counterattack with Pavlovian yeah. predictability. moment they counterattack, of course, they're then getting up out of their positions and exposing themselves, and that's the point where you go wham, and down comes all the firepower. And, of course, he's got Desert Air Force and the RAF Middle East to kind of support him, which is just, you know, the support of them, particularly Alamein, 2nd Alamein, is just incalculable. OK, we're going to take a short break now. Um, Monty's Humber's just pulling into the service station for a packet of crisps and a Diet Coke. See you in a tick. Welcome back to We Have Ways. Now, well, during our break, then um, uh, we got we got James said, "Well, we need to talk about the assassination of General Gott." Now, John, you know who General Gott I was. I know who General Gott was. Strafer Gott. Strafer Gott. I wouldn't say he, I wouldn't have known that he was assassinated. But well, he was. I know. I know he was shot down. I know he was killed on his way. Well, he was in North Africa. He got there, hadn't he? Yeah. So he was just being just taking up command. He was about to take up command of Eighth So he was just about to take up command. He was being summoned back to Cairo. And he went, and the person who brought him in was in a, I think it was a Vickers Bombay. And the guy who was the pilot was a young guy called Jimmy James, who I got to know very, very well later on in his life. And right. he's a lovely guy, he's a Welshman. He's a brilliant guy, and he got down and got kept him well, waiting. Hang on, before, before you tell me this, because while we were on the break, James said, well, of course, we've got to talk about the assassination of General Gott, yeah. right? Assassination. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a, Big word. I mean, yeah, you know, he was. He was definitely assassinated. What? Yeah, he hundred percent was. So what happened was, first of all, um, not by Donald Trump. <laughs> Maybe his dad. Who knows? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, okay. So what happened was, 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 so Jimmy James turned up in his in his in his Vickers Bombay to go and pick him up from a landing ground at Tactical Headquarters. Um, 8th Army yeah. and um, got kept in waiting, waiting and that was really really bad news on two counts first of all because the engine started to overheat yeah. and, and you had to keep them on you just didn't want because of security you didn't want anyone picking up where they were yeah. and radio security in North Africa at this stage in the summer of 19, yeah, and the beginning of August 1942 was not great and they knew that the Germans were listening into them. So you, if you were going to take any VIPs, you wanted to get them off really, really quickly. So what happens, they've got some wounded guys on the back of the plane, and then Gott turns up, and they, they, they goes, right, you ready? They shut the door on him, on, on the fuselage. Jimmy goes round back, you know, takes off. Um, his, his handler takes, you know, joins him up, up yeah. front. They take off, and as they're, 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 they're a few miles out, suddenly six 109s come and, and, and strafe them and hit them. And Jimmy has to do a crash landing in the desert, finds yeah. a spot to go into, can't get the tail down, just cannot get the tail down. It's still rumbling on, it's on fire, uh, and he cannot get it down. And the, the planes come back and do another run to try and finish yeah. it off. And he was, and, and even then, you know, that, that is very unusual because 
you know, there was a, a, a sort of more gentlemanly war out there. And there was no reason, you know, once you brought the plane down, that's all you need to do. You know, that's not going to go anywhere again. You don't need to kind of finish it off. Yeah. And they're strafing him again. And uh, you're trying to kill someone. Now, what's very interesting is, is the, um, the plane catches fire. And when it's been put, when the door has been put on the fuselage, the, the catch has got knocked. And so the guys inside can't get the door out. They can't open it. It's got stuck. So they can't get off the plane. So they all burn to death, including Scott. And Jimmy, although the plane, you know, he's in a complete state, he's badly wounded, badly burned, he managed to drop out of the floor from the yeah. hatch underneath the cockpit, rolls away, and literally seconds later, the whole undercarriage collapses. So he is that moment from being squished. Yeah. He's in a really bad state. Starts walking, what he works out is northwards, because they're just south of the Mediterranean line, yeah. but, yeah. you know, within yeah. friendly lines, um, and, and collapses of his burns and, and, yeah. and of, of, uh, of all the rest of it, and gets picked up by Bedouins, who then bump into a roving, uh, um, some sappers, yeah. who then take him off, and he reports to, um, um, he reports what's happened, and that, that, that Gotter's being killed, and all the rest of it. Years after, he was always convinced that, that it was a deliberate was assassination, right. because of what happened. Years later, I mean years later, literally only 15 years ago, he found, he tracked down, the guy who was the commander of the flight of Messerschmitts and met him in Germany. And it turns out that when Herr Clauder turned back to his landing ground, a very high ranking, he said a high ranking intelligence officer came in and said, where is the commander of that flight? Literally as he was getting out of his Messerschmitt. And he went over to him and he said, congratulations, you've just killed the new commander of the um, 8th Army. And they worked out the timings and at that moment, um, Jimmy had not been picked up by the Bedouins. Well, goodness me. <laughs> yep. So he was assassinated. Yeah, and when he told him what had happened, and, told, and when Jimmy told Herr Clowder that all these guys had been killed and that Gott had been killed and that also all these wounded yeah. men had been killed, he broke down in tears. It's the most amazing, amazing story. And I've told you, you know, when he told me for real, for the first time, it was in a pub just outside Winchester. Yeah. And I was... You know, jaw well, open, just listening to this. And he told, what, what he told, what I've just said in about four minutes, yeah. he told me in yeah. two hours. Yeah, it was yeah. amazing. I'll send you the transcript. It's, it's just completely fantastic. In fact, I'll and, post it up. But, but, it's brilliant. And of course, I mean, the, just the, the counterfactuals that spin off that. Yep. Because if, if, cause M Montgomery's character very much suited the situation he found yep. himself in when he got the Eighth Army job. Yes. Would got have had, I mean, got... There was a there was a second battle of Alamein to be won. God was God was about forty three at the time, but um, when Alexander met God, because Alexander got out there as commander in chief, Middle East after yeah. Auchinleck was fired, before Monty did, obviously because God was going to be his army commander. And when he met him, he thought he seemed tired, uh, and they'd just been through this incredibly long period yeah. of you know. Crusader in the yeah. autumn end, end of 1941. Not to make anything stick. Yeah, and having just, and I think, think the, how wearing it was, this constant battle of commanders where everyone was, because Ritchie wasn't gripping it, Orkinet yeah. was too far away. Yeah. And so, and Ritchie obviously was the, the, the precursor um, before Orkinet took over direct command of 8th Army. So yeah. Ritchie was in charge for Gazala and, and the fall of Tobruk. And everyone was at loggerheads and, and Richie just didn't have enough grip to be able to control all his, yeah. his, his divisional and core commanders. And they're all just absolutely fighting terribly. And 
Gott's just come off this incredibly intense period of battle from the 26th of May, which is when Rommel launches the, uh, the attack of the Panzer Army Africa, yeah. all the way, you know, all the way through to the fall of Tobruk on the 21st of June, all the way through to the kind of first Battle of Alamein yeah. throughout July. So he's just been at it the whole time. You think of the kind of how tiring it is, just yeah, constantly yeah. being expected to make command decisions. Montgomery does is he turns up fresh because he turns been, up fresh. He's been training. In, he's good he's to been go. Training formations in totally. in Britain and uh, and isn't isn't worn out. And also, it doesn't doesn't have all the animus that he may have with his other officers. He's got yeah. no preconceptions about no what he's preconceptions going to what, no. about what the different units are capable of and mm. what the, you know, and it obviously then has to figure all that out and yep. shake all that down, but arrives fresh. But, but the other thing is your counterfactual though, because because if, if God had got the job, would we would bells have peeled? Um, uh, I, I suspect I so. I suspect they would have done because I think actually a lot of what Montgomery was saying, you know, no more retreats. Yeah. Um, you've got to go and sit, talk to the front. I mean, that was all steered by Alexander to start yeah. off with. Then Monty starts to find his own voice and his own confidence out there. Mm. I mean, he, he's that way inclined anyway. But 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 Alexander has already set the parameters. When he first comes, John, out. did you did you know that this stuff about? Did you know this about God? No, not at all. I mean, I knew that Rommel had. I was just thinking when, while James was talking that Rommel had an exceptionally good radio inter yeah. intercept service. Yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me that they were listening in on those sorts of discussions. I mean, North um, Africa in general was very leaky, wasn't there? Because yeah. The, the, uh, yeah. The guy yeah. in the American consul, yeah. yes. who they were listening to, and uh, uh, and they kind of knew what knew what Eighth Army. I think one of the mm. one of the big sort of things that happened in Alamein was. That was really good for the for the Allies was when Rommel's radio intercept company gets overrun and basically eliminated. Yes, and and that is it's it's sort of one of the things that happens in Alamein that people don't talk about. But actually, it was a massive blow to the Africa Corps. Yes, it absolutely was. They they knew exactly what the British well almost exactly what the British were thinking up till that point. Right. Yeah, and then after that, it was all gone. But just to go back to Jimmy James. So what was really interesting about him was um, you know when he was in hospital. Yeah, he kept saying, "I've got to tell someone about this." You know, I know this guy was assassinated. And everyone just went. Shh. Zip it. I mean, literally, you know. And well, so, you don't so, want that. You don't want that. No, you, of course you don't. Abroad. Of course you don't. Yeah, yeah. Of course you don't. But it. But but he spent kind of fifty years of his post-war life trying to kind of convince people, be, be heard, and be convinced. And and that's what led him to try and track down Herr Cloud, and he did, and had everything that he had always suspected confirmed. Well, I think uh, I'm glad we came back from the break. <laughs> that concludes this uh, uh, very special in this um, Imperial War Museum. We have ways. We're here for the afternoon, so we've got more for you. Thanks for listening. Thanks, John. Cheers. Thank you. Cheerio. Cheerio.